Well, good morning again. <laughs> I used to, when I was in a, I, we used to be in a church in Pennsylvania, and there was a retired minister there, retired missionary actually. And whenever he preached, he'd get up there and he would stand there for a good minute or two, just and he wouldn't say anything, and he just kind of look everybody over, more like, Pastor Shelley, what are you doing? He goes, I'm taking attendance. Hey, um, as I said before, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Last week, we did something kind of unique. It was just a one-off kind of sermon, but we, we looked at what I called God's story. And we broke the gospel down into to four parts in order to give context to the message of salvation, right? We talked about creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Because the, the, the designers of the track kind of determined we're in a post-Christian era, and, and people, if you start in with Jesus, you're starting in the middle of the story, so you have to start at the beginning of the story, which is a God who's created all things, it's good creation, everything's in harmony, then there was a fall, sin entered the world, and the, the rescue, that's, that's where we all know it, okay, so that's the Jesus story, and then restoration, the, the future, what, what the future holds, and what, what that track does is kind of answer, well, it doesn't kind of, it does answer the four basic worldview questions that that every culture is asking, whether they know they're asking it or not. And, and so we went through the, the questions. Uh, we talked about the answers that, that uh, the, the Bible gives us. And, you know, we did this because we're going into a new year. And you and I can change the world. It, it just, it's just one person at a time. It's not a big revolution, but we can change the world one person at a time. The early church was able to, to do what critics were saying, tur turn the world upside down. I mean, a revival broke out in, in Ephesus, and it wasn't this fancy meeting over and over. It was just people coming to Christ, so much so that the culture changed in Ephesus, right? And, and, and the silversmiths got upset because nobody was buying the, the little idols of Artemis anymore. And everybody that had books on sorcery, were bring, they brought them at one point into the, the town square, the city center, and they burned them because they didn't need those books. They found the true God, the living God. So one person at a time. Um, and I, I just want you to be prepared and confident in this, this new year that you can change lives. So we gave you an app last week. It's called The Story. Um, and we had a QR code. So there's, there's the QR code. Um, Gen Z, millennial, in the, to the young baby boomers, probably understand what to do with this. If you're older than that, it's no shame in saying I have no idea what that is. Um, but we also have some, some actual physical tracks on the table and then on the table out in, in the lobby. But uh, if you download that app and start tinkering around with it. There is stuff in there that you just won't believe. There's a couple of videos, one for adults, one for kids, that tell the story. Uh, there's just conversation starters. There's the actual track. There's all kinds of neat stuff in there. Um, you can actually uh, create your own account, and then they'll give you a monthly report on how many times you've shared it, which is both an encouragement and something that is like, oh, gosh, I didn't talk to anybody. Um, but it also gives you just like world stats. It's, it's, it's a great app. So I just encourage you to, to check that out. All right. So this morning we, we begin a new series. 
and we're going to take the next five weeks to work through it. It's titled, A Window into the Church. And uh, in these weeks, we're going to look through a metaphorical window at the church and try and define certain aspects of what is the church. You know, is the church that physical window, that physical building? Is the church the people inside? What's, how's all that fit together? And so we're going to look at five different kind of aspects. We're going to, it's going to be more of a topical approach to things. Today, we're going to look at God's Word and see how we can build our life upon it and how we can build the church upon it. Um, through the years, I've been asked, I, I remember after one funeral in particular, somebody came up to me and said, do you always preach from the Bible? And it was kind of that way. It's like, do you always preach from the Bible? As if, dude. And uh, I said, yeah. I said, so, so here's the problem. I said, I'm not smart enough or clever enough to come up with something I'm own every week to preach. So that, that, that's, that's part of the problem. The other problem is it is God's word. And you're wasting your time if you don't spend time looking at it, even if you've, you've heard it before, even if you think you know this gospel or this epistle or this Old Testament story. Some of us have grown up in the church. I didn't have that advantage. I became a Christian when I was 17 and uh, went through my senior year of high school after that. That was like in the fall, my junior year, went through my senior year of high school, went off to college, got involved with crew. Um, and then in that process, I asked Debbie to marry me. We'd been dating. Um, we ended up in seminary. I say we because she was part of the package. I mean, we, if she wasn't into it, I wasn't going to be going. So I ended up in seminary, and I was in my first preaching class, and they said, okay, now we're going to hand you out stuff, um, you know, little stories out of the Old Testament, and we want you to, you know, on the spot kind of put together a sermon. And they handed me this story. I had never seen it. I had never read it because I'd never been in the Word. I, at that point in time, I was like six years old in the Lord. And so I, like, that's not, a, that's not a weird story. That's in the Bible? I, I share that to say that we're all at different stages. I was in seminary, and I had never been through Sunday school, so I didn't know the simple Bible stories. Like, the other guys in the class are like, oh, yeah, dude, I know. This is going to be great. And I'm like, I guess it stinks to be me, you know? I mean, okay. So we're going, we're going to be going through stuff that maybe you've heard. But I want you to see what God's doing in that. I want you to think deeply. Okay? Um, I had a, a, a guy in this congregation we were at in Pennsylvania who, who, who took copious notes. Like he, he had, I don't know if he used a, a moleskine or what he had, but he, he would have one book of notes for, for the whole year. And I messed him up one year because my sermon series stopped at Advent, and then we picked it up again in January. And he was actually upset with me because now that sermon series was in two different journal books. It, that was, I mean, yeah, somebody, yeah, content just said, I, I love that. The, the reason I share that is because he was, a, he was just a student of the Word, and he was always, and he'd come up to me and go, you know, two years ago you preached on this passage. I'm like, I know. I said, how'd I do? He goes, oh, well, good. You brought out some new stuff this time. I'm like, okay. That's the beauty of God's word, right? So all that, again, to say we're going to be jumping into some stuff today that maybe you've heard before, but I want you to ask God to talk to you about it. 
See, here's the thing. God's word provides us with truth, truth that is life-changing. And sometimes our lives change a little bit, and then the next time we hear it, it changes a little bit more. You know, sometimes we've, we've gone backwards a little bit, so we have to, we have to catch up. It's, it's life-changing. God's word shines in our hearts, and it gives us identity. God's word shines in our hearts, and it gives us truth. It also shines into this world and dispels darkness. There's, there's a lamppost on my, my route I walk. I used to walk with a dog. She's not with us anymore. I walk by myself at, at night. And when it, it just decides to light up, and sometimes it's off. It, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, but when it's off, it's dark. And when it's on, it's great. You can see you can see well because light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't withstand it. And that's God's word. It shines in the darkness. It, it allows us to reveal to the world who Jesus is. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Um, and, and so it, it, it explains things. It, it shines light in darkness. And it's important. So our title today is The Foundation because it's the foundation for us. I know the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, but I'm saying God's word is a foundation for our spiritual lives. And we're going to look, um, we're going to start in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, but we're going to break this whole passage up into three different, this whole sermon up into three different passages. We're going to start with Matthew, we're going to call that the foundation. We're going to look at 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, and we're going to call that reliable. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and we're going to, we're going to call that profitable. And then we're just going to talk about textual criticism, all right? And we'll, we'll explain all this as, as we go along. So turn in your Bible or scroll in your device to Matthew 7. And I want to read uh, the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, basically. Um, and I want you to follow along as I read. And uh, before we do that, I want to pray, okay? Lord, as we open your word, we're going to come to things this morning and over the next five weeks that are familiar to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear with fresh ears. I pray this morning we'd hear with fresh ears. I pray this morning, Lord, we would not hear my voice, but we would hear your voice. It's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. So here's. Here's the end of uh, Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 24, chapter 7 of Matthew. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And, a great, and great was the fall of it. So what I want us to glean from the, the three passages in our, our little uh, venture into textual criticism this morning is this. God's word gives form and direction to your life. God's word gives form and direction to your life. 
So we're going to begin by looking at what Jesus has to say about the foundational nature of his word. Next, we'll, we'll listen to what the Apostle Peter says about the reliability of God's word. Then we'll look at what the Apostle Paul says about the nature and purpose of God's word. And lastly, we'll look at the evidence textual criticism provides to support the accuracy of God's word. And we study thusly because I want you to be confident with God's word. So God's word gives form and, and direction to our life. In Matthew, Jesus tells a story, right? He tells a story about two builders. In the parable, Jesus speaks of a wise builder and a foolish builder. He says, the one who hears his words and does them, who hears Jesus' words, and by extension, we can say, who hears God's words. I mean, in, in the context, he's probably speaking about the Sermon on the Mount. In the broader principle, it would be all of God's word. Whoever hears his word and does them is like a wise builder who built his house on solid ground. The rain came, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. And the question becomes, why? Well, it, it's clear. The house did not fall because it was built on solid rock, on a solid foundation. It was built on a rock that provided a firm foundation. It was secure. It was safe. Jesus next spoke about the, the one who hears these words and does not do them. Well, this one is like a foolish builder who built his house on the sand. Jesus says the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat against the house, and it fell. In fact, it was a great falling, meaning that it was a catastrophic event. I don't know if you've ever built sandcastles at the, at the lake shore, at the seashore. And you always want to build them a, a bit away from however high the, the water's coming. Because you're building on sand. And I... I I remember building sandcastles and building too close to the waves, you know, with the kids, and and it gets wiped out, and they're like, oh, you know, we have to build it again, and then we have to build it again, and we have to build it again, and we have to build it again. And then finally I'm like, okay, so we need to take a break. But the, the, the point is, if you build something on sand, it, the water eats away at the sand, which your foundation is. So the point, the lesson of his parable is obvious. A life built on the foundation of God's word is a life which has purpose and identity. It does not collapse in the heat, in, in the heat of the, the hard times. It, it doesn't collapse. It, it remains firm. And just like today, a house that's built on a cement foundation is solid and stable. A life built upon God's word has a solid and secure foundation. We have to ask ourselves this question. Are you building your family, your career, your life on God's word? Are you building your, your family, your career, your life on God's word? Because it's not just meant for Sunday mornings and Sunday school and lessons for our children. It's meant to build our life. It has to be the direction the form that, that is given to our lives. Otherwise, we're living futile lives. God's Word gives direction, form and direction to your life. All right, let's, let's turn over to, to 2 Peter. So 
2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21, reliable. Here's what Peter writes. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we unfold these, these words of Peter, we need just a little bit of context. He's writing to a mixed congregation, Jew and Gentile. He's writing about 30 years or so after the death of Christ. So that's not that long after. Right, his memory, I mean, we, we can remember things, if, if, if you're old enough, you can remember things 30 years ago. Some things you don't, some things you do, but the big things you remember, the, the, the traumatic things, the, the important things, the, the emotional things you remember. So, when Peter talks about what he remembers, that's because that thing, that event was like cemented in his mind. He's writing to uh, encourage people to grow spiritually as they turn from the ways of the world. So these people, a lot of them are probably first-generation Christians, maybe second. They may be growing up in a Christian household, but for the most part, they're first-generation Christians who are walking away from the world and into a brand-new world that's illuminated by the Word of God, that, that's empowering them and the Spirit empowering them. He's speaking to brand new Christians. Not us old crusty ones that have been around a Christian, Judeo-Christian culture. So he's speaking in this passage, in this context, he's speaking, he wants to provide his readers with confidence in God's Word. This is important for us for the same reason. See, we, they were hearing mixed messages now. They, there was false teachers that were moving through. They're still trying to forget the things they were taught in their former life as a pagan worshiper of idols, maybe as a Jew who was caught up in the legalistic ritual of the whole thing and had missed God. They're trying to kind of forget that stuff and move into understanding who Jesus is in their life. They're also getting mixed messages from that past in their mind, but from traveling individuals who are false teachers. So he... He wants them to be confident. We hear the same messages from the world. If you became a Christian somewhere after being a child, like myself, maybe, I, I have 17 years of not walking with Christ, not knowing who God was, and really not caring that I have to keep pushing away. So, so we all hear these mixed messages, we need confidence in God's word. And Peter begins this passage by using the word we to connect himself to the other 12 disciples. 
See, the 12 disciples went out preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preached the same message Jesus did in Mark 1, verse 15, when he, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent from what? From all that stuff. Believe what? That he is the Son of God. And the gospel became even more clear once he died and rose again. There were no gospel tracks. There were no QR codes that you could load an app of a track on your phone. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. It was in the process of being written. The gospel message was transferred by, by word of mouth. Historians call that oral tradition. And they were used to that. Many of them were illiterate. And so everything they knew, they locked away in their memory. It, it wasn't cluttered with all the stuff we clutter it with. They, they were used to, to hearing a message and then internalizing it. They, they were used to, to just an oral presentation of the gospel, meaning the, the teachings of Jesus and how it fits to the Old Testament and the lessons of the Old Testament and all that stuff. They didn't have PowerPoint presentations. They, did, they didn't have notes. They didn't have a Bible. It was this, this total oral intake of God's Word. So it's important that Peter establishes the fact that he is speaking in the tradition of the apostles. He's one of them. He was there. When he talks about Jesus walking on the water, it's because he saw it. In fact, he walked on water himself. So Peter wants them to understand, as he's speaking now about the, having confidence in the word, this word that they know as an oral word, not as a written word yet, is coming from somebody who has first-hand knowledge? Peter says the twelve were eyewitnesses to the things Jesus did and taught. And then, in this specific context, he says, I was there at the transfiguration with James and John. These three were there when Jesus received honor from God, and when God the Father identified Jesus as his Son in whom he's well pleased. They were there when, when the glory of God was revealed in Jesus the, the heavenly glory, like it, it's as if Jesus peeled away or God allowed him to peel away that, that humanity that was clouding, that was veiling the glory of God he had in heaven so they could see that. They saw the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter says, we were there when this took place. We saw this. We heard the words of the Father. Could you imagine what it would be like to talk to Peter, like to be in that setting? and realize that, that this man was actually there. Did it smell normal? Did your eyes hurt from seeing? Were, were you shaking? Could you not stop shaking? What was it like, Peter? Well, let me, let me tell you, Peter says. So he's telling them, I was there. I was there. And he's doing this to establish the fact that what he's presenting to them to use a common phrase, he uses the gospel truth. Peter, by using the word confirmed in this passage, is saying you can trust God's word to be true. He's saying the word he brings is a foundational and true word. He wants his readers to know what he and others heard spoken by the Father confirms everything the prophets of the Old Testament had declared concerning the coming Messiah. This, of course, means everything he has said about Jesus is backed up by the prophets of the Old Testament. 
He says, do your homework. What have you heard? How does that match with what I'm telling you now that you're hearing currently? Peter states his readers would do well. Now, when I read that, pat, that, that phrase, I thought, wow, that, that's, that's powerful. You will do well to listen to this, to, to take heed to this, to pay attention to this. He's not mincing any words. He's saying everything I'm bringing to you, everything you've heard the other apostles bring through secondary words of mouth, through, through what you would do well to pay attention to this. Because it's a lamp shining in a dark place, just like the lamp on my walk in the evening. When it's off, it's a dark place. When it's on, it shines. And the day's going to come when, when Jesus is going to return, and, and it'll be as if the morning star, that, that last star in the, in, in the morning, just it, it disappears and the sun comes up and it shines in you. That, that's what it's going to be like. Peter's saying that this, this all is going to take place. Christ is coming again. It's all according to the word declared by the prophets. This is important because false teachers in the world twist God's word. And he needed to bolster their confidence in the word so they're not drawn away from it. Paul warns the elders at Ephesus. He says, wolves are going to come in. Wolves even among you elders. We're going to want to draw people away from Jesus and make disciples for yourself. That's what Peter wants to offset right here. He goes, there's false teachers and you can't listen to them. God's word is always reliable. It's always true is what Peter said. And this brings us into the last two verses, right? Verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy. So he's established the fact that what he's bringing is the legit word. And now he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let that sink in a moment. He wants his readers to know that what he and others heard, spoken by the Father, confirms everything that the prophets had said, right? But he also wants them to know that it's not some clever imagination. They didn't just make this stuff up, but it comes from God through the altar. Peter informs us that God's word is a combination of God and the human author. He says the word is carried along, literally means to be moved by the wind, the, the wind in the sails of a boat, a sailboat. The sailboat is directed by the hand on the tiller, whoever's on the tiller. They direct where the boat goes. It's the wind that fills the sails and moves the boat along. You need both working in tandem. In the same way the Holy Spirit moves the human heart to write, the human author to write, the human, the, the, the human preacher, in Peter's case, to proclaim what he has seen and knows to be true. But the author writes using his own style. Peter speaks using his own style. He's not going to say the same story the same way the other 12 would. He's not going to say it the same way that, that Paul says. He uses his own vocabulary. Paul's vocabulary was probably larger than Peter's, seeing as though Paul was an educated man and Peter was nothing but a, a fisherman. Experience. All that plays in to what becomes God's word as the Holy Spirit moves through the individual. 
and I, I think we're left asking a question then. Are, are you looking in God's word for the truth you seek? Because that's what Peter wants us to know. God's word is reliable. It's always true, and it's where we find the truth we need. There's no other place to find it. God's word gives form and direction to our lives. Turn over to 2 Timothy 3.16. 16 and 17. Profitable. Paul writes this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So here we have Paul writing his second letter to a young pastor, a, a, a man he's, he's apprenticed, he's discipled, he's been a mentor to, and in these verses, Paul tells Timothy the origin of God's word and its purpose. He states all scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. When Paul uses the word all, he's speaking, he's very technical now, of everything. He means all. He, he's speaking of the Old Testament scripture, which, which Timothy grew up with. If you look at chapter 3, verse 15, just go up one verse. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's what Paul's talking about. Timothy grew up in a home that, that was partially Greek, and, and he knew the Old Testament inside and out. All Scripture, Paul says. The Old Testament that you learned, Timothy. But Paul also had in mind the things which were apostles, like Peter, were currently teaching and writing. That he was currently teaching and writing. According to Peter, actually, the apostles knew they were speaking and writing Scripture. Peter states in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, when he says the writings of Paul are Scripture. Peter understood this. Even as the New Testament was being written and, and collected, Paul says in a number of places, pass this on to the next church. These, some of these letters, these epistles were cyclical. They all had the Old Testament, the corpus of the Old Testament text. They saw that as, as God, all of it was God's Word. Could you imagine being in the day when the, God's Word is being written and the guys that are writing it know it's God's Word? It's just amazing. So as you, as you think about this, he, Paul, Paul continues and he says it, it's breathed out by God. Okay, so he's using a different metaphor, a different picture here. This means every single word is from God as well as the whole of the scriptures. So each word belongs there as well as it belongs in that paragraph, it belongs in that chapter, it belongs in that book. It, it, it all belongs there. The genealogies, the narratives, those stuff we kind of gloss over, that's God's word. That's all meant to be right there. The poetry, I never got into poetry in high school, struggled with it in, in seminary. It must be an old man thing because I'm getting more into it. it it's making more sense now. Poetry just seems to, to resonate with me, although my, my son was a literary English lit major and he loves poetry. So I, it's all of it. 
It's God's word. Now, this doesn't, and it was breathed out by God. It doesn't mean that that the, the authors heard a voice. It doesn't mean that the Spirit overtook them and moved their hand. It doesn't mean that, that they were dictated to, but it means that the Spirit overcame the author, inspired the author, breathed into the author everything that God wanted to be written down, and then the author took over with their own, again, with their own style, own vocabulary, own experience, own personality to produce God's Word. See, everything written in the Bible is supposed to be there. Everything written in the Bible is supposed to be there. So after Paul establishes that all Scripture is from God, he then tells the purpose for the Scriptures. Look, he says, first, they are profitable for teaching, that is, causing others to understand the truth of God's Word. Then he says, second, the Scriptures are profitable for reproof, that is, bringing uh, conviction of wrongdoing. Then Paul says, third, the, the Word of God is profitable for correction, showing ways to live rightly. And then fourthly, he says, for training in righteousness. Now, I love Warren Wearsby, and, and so I got a slide here of how, how Pastor Wearsby understands this. He says, they are profitable for, direct, for doctrine, what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. Isn't that wonderful? That's the power of God's Word. It has that kind of impact on our lives when we use it. Furthermore, Paul tells us the Scriptures are all we need to be equipped for every good work. Every good work. So they not only do these four things, but those four things combined equip us for every good work. See, God's Word gives us direction for living life. It provides us with the information we need to serve God, to serve others. Eric Metastas um, wrote an excellent biography. It's a short one. It's not like Bonhoeffer's biography. You could fit uh, probably 10 of these biographies of, of William Wilberforce inside of Bonhoeffer, the, the Bonhoeffer biography that Metastas wrote. Um, so um, all that to say, you, you need to read this one on on William Wilberforce. It's titled Amazing Grace. And it, and it talks about the fact that one summer when he was on holiday from school, William Wilberforce took the whole summer to read through the Bible. By the time he got to the end of the Bible, he was saved. He got saved. And that changed him. It changed him forever. In fact, it changed Britain because Wilbur William Force spent the rest of his life working for the end of slavery. And, and so in doing, he changed the very culture and fabric of the country. See, God's Word has the power to change us and those around us. You may not change a country, but there's people around you that you can impact and change. Will you let the Word of God change you? Is the question we have to ask ourselves. Because God's Word gives form and direction to your life. Textual criticism. Sounds kind of heady. Um, it can, you can get lost in it. It is pretty heady. Textual criticism is the study of all the manuscripts connected to a piece of literature. 
to determine the original and or most authoritative text of that piece. Right? So if you're going to study the works of Shakespeare, you, you need to collect, and you're going to be, te you're going to be a textual critic, you've got to collect all the manuscripts that, that are attributed to Shakespeare, and then you have to look at them and, and overlap them and see how they uh, collaborate one another or how, oh, this one's anomaly, throw it out, it doesn't fit with everybody else kind of thing. Or do we keep the anomaly because actually it fits better than if we threw it out? So the text of the New Testament that you hold in your hand is supported by over 5,000 different manuscripts. In other words, there are 5,000 manuscripts which when you put them together verify the accuracy of the Bible you hold in your hands. 5,000 different manuscripts. Some of them are just a little piece of the book of Acts. Uh, it might be a, a whole book. It might be just a couple of chapters. But when they layer them all together and they put them, all 5,000 of them together, what it produces is your Bible's an accurate reproduction of the original manuscript. Now, textual evidence in the New Testament, its, it's accuracy is, really it's better than what we have for Shakespeare. It's better than what we have for Homer's works or Julius Caesar's works. The, the, the New Testament textual evidence to the accuracy of the, the Bible we have here is better than things that we take for granted like Shakespeare, Homer, or Julius Caesar. Now, scholars would tell you there's like 200,000 minor discrepancies in the New Testament. So this has to do with like pronoun here or not. It, it has to do with word order. The, the Greek text, there, there was no sentence structure. There was no periods. There was no commas. As you read it, there was no cap. You had to read it and know, oh, there's an end of a thought and the beginning of a new thought. Oh, and there's the end. And when you get into Paul's writings, his sentences go on forever. So you're going to have discrepancies in word order or word choice, style change. Yet none of these discrepancies, none of them change the message of the New Testament. The rich textual heritage stands in stark contrast to other religious books. Let's take the Koran. I have, I, I had, he passed, a friend. We went to college together, and then we ended up down at Dallas Seminary together, and he went on and worked in his doctorate in textual criticism of, wait for it, the Koran. When Keith got ready to publish his work, he had to publish under a pseudonym. He couldn't publish his actual name because of the threats on his life. But what he discovered in his textual work, he would give lectures. He studied at Oxford. He'd give lex lectures in Britain where the house would be full of imams and, and uh, teachers of the Quran and, and other people, scholars, uh, both Muslim and, and non-Muslim, and as he began, would begin his lecture and get into the meat of it, the room would just be like dead silent. He said there'd be like nasty stares he'd be getting as he preached this stuff. Because what he was uncovering was that the Quran has no textual accuracy. No textual accuracy. Because through time, the various texts of the Quran were destroyed by people vying for political power. So they, they'd go with, with this copy because this copy supports their ideology or 
Somebody else would take over and they'd get rid of this copy and they'd go with this copy because this copy supports their ideology. And pretty soon nobody knew if there was an authoritative text because there isn't. Copies were being destroyed as power changed from one to another in the midst of the Muslim world. So unlike the biblical texts, which are preserved first by the Jews and then by followers of Jesus, the Quran has been a tool of man to manipulate people in order to gain political power. So when you look at both the Old Testament and the New Testament together, you, you need to realize both that there's an accuracy and a compatibility that is uncanny. Let, let the following thoughts soak in. The 66 books that you have in your hand were written by 40 different authors. Over a span of 1,500 years. Yet all 40 authors present, what, a consistent message? Who God is? A consistent theological and historical message of God and his interaction with his people? In fact, Jesus often quotes the Old Testament. Or he'll say something to the, the Pharisees and the scribes like, have you not read Moses? He, he speaks of Jonah. This shows us that Jesus validates the contents of the Old Testament. That was the book. The Son of God looks at the Old Testament and goes, yeah, I wrote that. And you need to pay attention. See, our faith is founded on the solid foundation of God's Word. It speaks of it, and the texts themselves speak of it. God's Word gives form and direction to your life. The big takeaway, it's really complicated, ready? Spend time reading God's Word. I'm not going to tell you how, I'm not going to tell you what version, I'm not going to tell you how much or when. Just say, read it. Read God's word. It'll change you. It'll answer questions. It'll give you hope. It'll give you courage. We can rejoice today. God's word is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Well, let me close in prayer. All right. God, this morning we come here together and uh we realize that there's, there's friends and family that are ill, and that weighs heavy on our hearts, and so we lift them to you. And God, we know of or uh, can only guess, there's college students getting ready to go back to school, start a new semester, and there might be fears of new material, there might be concerns over finances, there might be concerns over time, or just concerns about getting back to campus safely. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, for these college students, uh, the ones we know and love. Lord, we pray that they would find time to read your word. Father, we have missionaries that we, uh, we know and love. Are in the Middle East, and with the Middle East being such a hotbed of, of uh, hate and war right now, we pray for protection. Uh, we pray that it wouldn't be distracting, but that uh, it, 
you would give focus to the task at hand uh, that R could be effective for you. Now we think of the collapse, just uh, trying to keep things rolling in the southwest. Um, we pray for their direction in the, uh, the guidance of the, the, the virtual seminary, Latin seminary that they started, Spanish seminary. Father, we pray uh, for each other, uh, the person sitting on our right and our left, and ask that you would bless them this day. Uh, we thank you for them and, and the witness they provide for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing.